HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining me today is professor and author Alan Weiss. Interested in the intersection of art, literature, film, and food, he's written on phoenixes, on authenticity, on ceramics and zen gardens, and recently, recently, directed a film on dolls. He's also most notably the authority on all things stuffed cabbage. (laughs) True or not? Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let's just start with the stuffed cabbage. What is a stuffed cabbage and why the fascination with it? Okay. Um, There's a double or triple answer. Um... First of all, the fascination. I've written a number of uh, autobiographies, and, uh, well, I suppose one could call them autobiographies, and I wanted to do something culinary. My history is that my parents came from Europe after the war. My mother from Poland, my father from Hungary, they met in Germany, they came to America, where I was born. Born at a time in America when the culinary landscape was relatively bleak, except in the big cities. And I grew up basically eating Hungarian cuisine, which my mother cooked for my father. And um, when I started studying philosophy in college, uh, it was French philosophy. And when I was working on my PhD, this was in the mid-1970s, I got a Fulbright to go to Paris. I spent a year in Paris, and I pretty much adopted the country and spent, oh, about half of my adult life, which by now has been pretty long, in France, mainly Paris. So when I decided to work on a culinary autobiography, I was looking for some sort of emblematic dish, and it had to be something that articulated the cuisine of origin, which was Hungarian, and the cuisine of choice, which was French. And it happens at the time I had this project, 
um, my friend and I were spending our summers in the Aubrac. The Aubrac is a quite remote region of France. It's on the Massif Central. If I, if I told you to stick a pin in what you thought was the most isolated spot on a French map, uh, it would probably be the Aubrac. It also happens to be the epicenter of stuffed cabbage. It's mountainous land, uh, about uh, between 1,000 and 1,500 meters, rolling, past, lo rolling low mountain pasture land. Um, and of course, in Hungary, the stuffed cabbage is the national dish. So this is why the stuffed cabbage. Uh, the what of the stuffed cabbage is both the simplest and the most complex question to answer. Um, because, of course, a stuffed cabbage is anything wrapped in a cabbage leaf. So already it's a potentially infinite recipe. Um, but, of course, my interest was to articulate these two major culinary countries in my, my past, my genealogy, France and Hungary. So what I was looking for, I was trying to imagine how one could define the stuffed cabbage in that context or in the, that double context. And, and here, you know, a bit of my, the old philosopher will show through, but there are really two fundamental ways of defining something, in this case a dish. One could either do it empirically, so I could have looked at hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of cookbooks and compiled all the recipes in these two countries for stuffed cabbage. I'm not that sort of historical researcher. I had no intention of doing that. Um, or else one could intuit what a stuffed cabbage is or might be and imagine a limited set of pertinent features of qualities of the stuffed cabbage and from there uh, create a limited definition of what constitutes the cabbage. So if you want, we could start talking sure, about sure. this and maybe uh, sidetrack a number of times. Mm -hmm. I'm going to refer to my autobiography where the list is uh, very carefully worked out. Actually, first diversion. So you wanted to find this dish that was at once French and Hungarian. Were there any other contenders aside from the stuffed cabbage? Well, um, there actually weren't any. Okay, so the, you immediately knew. I knew immediately. Now, what I'm going to do with the stuffed cabbage, my investigation of one way to constitute a, a recipe or understand a dish, one could do with any dish. But the importance of the stuffed cabbage is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to do with roots that are lost and with a sort of culinary and existential utopia that I created for myself <laughs> in Paris. <laughs> so what I did is I created a sort of abstract portrait of a stuffed cabbage, but at each point of the abstraction, it's very, very concrete. So the first question you have to ask is, what sort of cabbage is in question? And I think almost everybody's familiar with stuffed cabbages that are made with uh, the leaves of uh, white or green cabbage, the hard-headed cabbage that we're used to using in the States. Um, but in these two countries, we're always thinking France and Hungary. The alternative is the Savoy cabbage, the frizzy-leaved cabbage. But then... I wanted to bring each of these categories to their logical limit, and I said to myself, well, what about the red cabbage? And I'd never met anyone who had heard of 
a red stuffed cabbage. I had never heard of it, but here I had to do some investigation, and I found out something really fascinating. There are stuffed red cabbages. The peculiar thing is, I found instances only related to the cuisine of the hunt, to game. I found these in cookbooks, American cookbooks, and cookbooks from two French regions where game is really important. Um, the Limousin, which is in the center, also in a relatively high area, and Alsace-Lorraine, uh, the area, the region bordering Germany. And when one thinks about it, it's not that strange because, you know, if we think about autumn food, uh, goose, for example, in many countries, in America, in Germany, one serves goose with, amongst other things, sautéed red cabbage. So there's a certain culinary logic in thinking of stuffing the red cabbage with something particular to the autumnal season, which is game. So already, when one thinks of it, it seems a bit too rational and narrowing to work through these categories. But when you start thinking categorically about dishes, you make discoveries. I would have, if I hadn't posed this question about the types of cabbage leaves, uh, I would have never discovered the recipes for red cabbage. Now, one could push this in far into the imaginary because there are also why on my list wouldn't I put decorative cabbages which we see all over New York in the winter mm -hmm. but of course we don't eat the decorative cabbages so it wasn't on my list but we can imagine we can imagine imaginary recipes for inedible foodstuffs mm -hmm. I think Artists do it all the time. The Surrealists did it all the time. But maybe that's something we'll come back to. So the first question was the type of leaf. So we have these three leaves. The second question is how do you prepare the leaves? So if you just try to put something in a cabbage leaf and fold it, the leaf will crack. Mm -hmm. So you have to prepare the leaf. You either boil it or parboil it. There is one more way of doing this. In Hungary, which is a country where one eats a lot of sauerkraut, often they will throw into the sauerkraut barrel entire cabbage heads mm. and they'll ferment entire cabbage heads and the fermentation is a form of cooking and that will soften the leaves so you could use these already fermented leaves which you can wrap which also have the added flavor of the fermentation it's extremely rare it's obviously very labor-intensive but it is another possibility um, the main question, I suppose, is what you use as the base for your stuffing. Um, in English, we say filler. The French don't have a word for filler, as if everything were very important. <laughs> uh, there is no filler there. And there are two fundamental sorts of stuffing. Uh, in France, what's usually used is soaked bread. Uh, usually rye bread or whole wheat bread, some bread that has a lot of flavor, soaked, squeezed out, and crumbled. In Hungary and some other countries, one often finds parboiled rice, uh, which, of course, absorbs a lot of the flavors, so it's a, a very nice way to fill in the stuffing. Um, and the rice is interesting because when you start thinking about where, or the types of cabbages, and where they come from. Uh, the French almost never put rice in stuffed cabbage. Uh, 
And once a French friend of mine, of Italian heritage, uh, said that her grandmother would put rice in the stuffed cabbage. And she lives in the back country behind Nice. And I looked at her and I said, oh, um, so this is the grandmother who, this must be the grandmother who is Italian. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, how did you know this? And I said, because of the rice. Because northern Italy is not a pasta country, it's a rice country, and they will stuff cabbages with rice. And stuffed cabbages are quite rare in, in Italy. It's not a big cabbage country. Uh, so you see the rice travels across the Italian border into the areas around Nice, Grasse, and the back hills. So the next question is the stuffing itself. And here, again, we're only limited to these two countries. The major stuffings will either be beef, veal, pork, vegetables, cheese, or some mixture thereof. Now, that sounds like a lot of possibilities, but you'll note already, we don't have fish, we don't have, you know, there are a lot of things that are not included. So it's, even though it's a wide range, it's still pretty limited. The next question is really interesting. It's what sort of fat stuff, what sort of fat you use to fry the meat and the other seasonings. And you know the way they always divide France? They speak of the culinary waterline. Uh, the northern part of France is butter and the southern part is olive oil. Actually, it's, there are three dividing lines on the watershed because the western part of France is uh, pork fat and duck fat and goose fat. What's interesting about the area where I was in France all those summers, the Aubrac and the Massif Central, it's right at the point of that watershed where all three fat stuffs are used. And not only that, one can find dishes in which one part of the cook dish is cooked on butter, one part on olive oil, and one part on goose fat, and all of that brought together in one dish. So this sort of geological, cultural heterogeneity I find really fascinating. Mm -hmm. But generally, it's one or the other. Um, then there's the technique of stuffing. This is fascinating because most people are familiar with single leaves that are stuffed and then rolled up and cooked. That's by far the most common uh, variety. But there's another variety that's a stratification. It looks like a layer cake. You, put, you flatten out a, a parboiled leaf, you put a layer of stuffing, leaf stuffing, leaf stuffing, you cook that, and then you serve slices. It's quite wonderful. The third variety is by far the most difficult and the rarest. You will, and this you can't do with a hard head of white cabbage. You have to use a Savoy cabbage. You parboil, or, or better yet, steam, par-steam if that's a word, the entire head of cabbage. You pull the leaves apart. You then stuff between the leaves. You tie it up back into its original form and cook it in that form. And that's quite spectacular because you bring to the table an entire cabbage, which is, it's like a trick dish, it's like a trompe l'oeil, it's an entire cabbage, but it's stuffed. And this is very labor-intensive, very hard to succeed, and very rare. I've only had it a few times in my life. Um, the question of the fundamentals of the seasoning, almost all of these are sour and salty, as are most main dishes in Europe. There are variants, though, that are sweet and sour that brings us away from Hungary and away from France. But, for example, there's a stuffed cabbage dish from central 
Polish-Jewish cuisine, which has raisins in it. And you could even identify where, you know, if you have a stuffed cabbage with sweet raisins, you know it's probably central Polish-Jewish. Um, but that's bringing us away from our countries. Um, there are three major ways of cooking it, or cooking techniques. Usually it's braised. You'll put it on a bed of vegetables, which you get cooking. You cover the top of the pot, and you let it cook for a very, 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 very long time. And of course, it's one of these dishes that's better when it's warmed up the next day and then warmed up the day after. But that's one way of doing it. Um, you can poach it. You know, there's a... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, there's a very famous dish that the French writer Colette you loved to make. It's a either nine or eleven hour poached leg of lamb. You take a leg of lamb, you cover it with a veal broth or a beef broth, and you just slowly simmer it until the for hours and hours and hours until the meat gets so soft you could serve it and eat it with a spoon. So you can cook a stuffed cabbage this way. Um, you cover it with broth and cook it. It's obviously labor-intensive and rather expensive if it's a, you know, very, very good broth. But that's also possible. And a third way, if you already have your stuffed cabbage, the rolls, you can slice them, bread them, and fry them. It's already not a light dish, and that makes it all that much <laughs> more not light. Um, but it's quite good, not too often. Um, then there's the role of the dish. Usually a stuffed cabbage is a main dish. I mean, it's so substantial that it will easily serve as a main dish. But I was flabbergasted one day when I first went to that region, uh, the Aubrac, and went to a restaurant. I wanted to have a stuffed cabbage. And I saw they were serving, um, it was either steak or sausage, and you could choose your accompaniment. And the accompaniment was either aligo. Aligo is a mixed potato and cheese and cream dish. So you could choose with your steak either aligo or a stuffed cabbage. I had never imagined a stuffed cabbage as a side dish. But apparently it's done. Um, when it's eaten as a main dish, you might want to, you know, you'll want to have an accompaniment. In the Obrak, it's invariably braised carrots and usually carrots braised in uh, bacon fat. Um, it can be tomatoes. It's not my favorite, but it can be done with a tomato sauce. And then, for example, in Alsace-Lorraine, the area of France that borders Germany, it's very often served with sauerkraut, choucroute. Or you could have it as a sauce. I once had a fabulous version in France with a classic brown sauce. It was a much more, it was a very elegant dish. Um, but it's rare, it's very unusual. It's usually served as a family dish. So those are the four ways to serve it. And then the final characteristic is the status of the dish. Um, the stuffed cabbage is generally a poor person's dish. It's a mountain dish. Mountains used to be the poor regions in France before skiing became a famous pastime. Uh, it's, it's usually a poor person's dish. Um, but one can imagine, and I've had uh, very rich versions with game in it and foie gras and wild mushrooms. So one has these various, uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 11 different characteristics 
with all of the variants. And what I did, so what we're working towards is the definition or the description of the stuffed cabbage. And one does the simple long multiplication of these characteristics with the variants that I mentioned. And you get 77,760 variants of stuffed cabbage in these two countries alone. Now, one has to, you know, one keeps in mind 77,760. It's like language, you know, in English or any language, you could make with your mouth sounds, phonemes, morphemes that have no meaning in the language. For example, if I go, the tongue click, which is a sound in numerous languages. One, one hears it, for example, there's a famous song by uh, the South African singer Miriam Makiba called the click song, where that sound does occur and it is a, it's meaningful. It means nothing in English. So you could have variants of stuffed cabbage that are culinarily meaningless that you wouldn't want to cook, but that doesn't mean they're uninteresting. And actually going through, I never went through all 70,760, but I have yet to find a variant that would be inedible. I don't know what that means, but I, I haven't found one yet. So we've gone through all of what makes a stuffed cabbage, but then on the flip side, what is not a stuffed cabbage? Because I, I remember the literal translation of the French, it, it's like a farce, or there's a kind of the play on the word, or play on words there. And so in your wrestling with and eating through stuffed cabbages, what have you determined to be a false, false cabbage? Well, <laughs> I could answer that question because somebody once made one for me. <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, what you're asking is also, in a certain sense, one meaning of the question of authenticity, which is very complex. But uh, a false stuffed cabbage. So I'll give you the recipe for one. <laughs> Um, in France, there's a wonderful culinary performance artist named Emmanuel Giraud. And a few years ago, I prefaced a book that was written about him and about his culinary performances. And he wanted to thank me for the preface, so he invited me over to dinner. And he didn't announce anything. I knew he's a very accomplished cook as well as performance artist. And the dinner began, we were out in the garden of his apartment building, and he brought down a bottle of Prosecco. It was a very good, very dry Prosecco named Ka Zen, like in Zen Buddhism, Ka Zen, with some things to nibble on. And I thought that was a nice gesture because I had just published a book called Zen Landscapes, and I thought he was very attentive, and um, it was very nice. And then we went upstairs and had a couple dishes. And at one point, I realized that the entire meal was symbolic. And all of the symbolism was linked to my writing. What a good uh, which, friend. Which was very charming. And the last dish, which was really the piece de résistance, which he'd been working on for two days, was what was essentially a false stuffed cabbage. <laughs> so he had made cabbage leaves, which weren't cabbage leaves, they were made out of Swiss chard, basil, and pork call, 
which he had put together to look like cabbage leaves. In that, he had stuffed it with cut-up, poached Breton lobster, little almost burnt croutons that were moistened with the lobster bouillon and butter that was all put together and then they were baked again. And when they were served, they looked exactly like stuffed cabbages. <laughs> they were false stuffed cabbages. And it was an homage to my autobiography in a stuffed cabbage. And then I should mention that I wanted to repay the compliment. And one day I made a meal related to his culinary writings. And one of his books was on pâtés, a very phantasmagoric book about pâtés and impossible pâtés. So I made for him not a pâté en croûte, a pâté in a crust, but I made a pâté en fausse croûte, a pâté in a false crust, the crust consisting of very thinly sliced potatoes that were almost burnt. So that's an example of a, mm-hmm. of a false stuffed cabbage, <laughs> and it was awfully good. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We're going to take a quick break and get back to the stuffed cabbage. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Michael Harlan Turkel, and I'm the host of The Food Scene here on HRN. This show explores the intersection of food, art, and design by talking to people who are inspired by these ideas. The show features food photographers, food stylists, interior designers, and so much more. All the players that make the world so visually delicious. You can find The Food Scene wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. So we were just talking about false, false cabbages. And I am now thinking, what if um, this lobster, false, false cabbage, was so, or tasted so remarkably like a real cabbage? And so I guess in form, it's a false cabbage, but in content, it is somehow a true stuffed cabbage. Would you still deem that an authentic stuffed cabbage? Oh, the, the question of authenticity. Um, <laughs> it's 
perhaps at the moment the most difficult question, the most difficult word in uh, culinary gastronomic discourse, uh, to the point where I'm doing a seminar this semester at NYU on uh, cuisine and performance. And we are engaged, amongst other things, in what I call the authenticity project. Because in a certain domain in the university, in the humanities, um, authenticity has become a bad word. It's really fallen out of favor. And I know all the reasons for it. Uh, it's because it smacks of hierarchy, it smacks of value judgments, it smacks of an impossible search for origins. But that's only one very narrow use value of the term. So what I've got my students and myself doing is every time the project is, every time someone comes across an instance of the, the use of the word in any sort of discourse, not only culinary, they've got to write it down, make a reference, and keep a log, and we're going to bring it all together, and we're going to do a sort of Wittgensteinian analysis to see how the word is used and how broadly it's used and what value it might have beyond this sort of narrow ideological value that's been critiqued uh, in the humanities. So it's already an extraordinarily diff difficult word. And also what, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but I found that in reading the popular press on, um, on food, on gastronomy, you know, the newspapers, the food magazines, authentic is probably the most used word and used almost always in a positive sense. So I think it's worth, it's worth asking the question. Um, in terms of my friend uh, Emmanuel's false stuff cabbage, um, no matter how good it would be, it would certainly be false as a stuffed <laughs> cabbage because it's not a stuffed cabbage. Mm. But one one could take one could take a couple of simple examples to look at the complications. So if we go back to France and to a book that I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with, uh, Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which for Americans, and especially Americans of my generation, it was the book that really brought people not into French haute cuisine, but gave people a sense of the accessibility of haute cuisine, uh, both from an eating and a cooking point of view. So she has in that book a stuffed cabbage recipe. And Julia Child was fabulous, and she also was quite free and easy with her recipes and their, shall I say, historic authenticity. And what's interesting in her stuffed cabbage recipe, in the first volume of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, is that there is grated Parmesan in her stuffed <laughs> cabbage. Now, grated Parmesan is not used in traditional French cooking. It's obviously Italian. Um, so you would have to ask, can this be and how can this be an authentic French recipe? And by authentic here, what I mean is in the narrow sense of coinciding with some traditional French recipes, some regional traditional French recipes. And my answer will be the same as, or at least following the model of the rice in my friend's grandmother's stuffed cabbage. So you do find Parmesan in some French recipes and in some French stuffed cabbage recipes, usually around Nice 
Grasse and the small villages in the foothills of the Alps behind Nice. But then one remembers that until 1860, that region was part of Italy, mm. not of France. Hence and whence the presence, the holdover of Parmesan in stuffed cabbage recipes, traditional stuffed cabbage recipes in France. Because at one point, we're going to probably, we're probably going to have to speak about the difference between traditional recipes and invented recipes, experimental cooking, nouvelle cuisine. Of course, when you're experimenting, anything is possible. When you're dealing with traditional cuisine, traditional cuisines change, but they tend to be very conservative in their changes. They tend to change very slowly, and you could usually read things off of that change. Usually if a new ingredient comes in or an old ingredient disappears, there's a historical reason for that happening as with the stuffed hmm. cabbage with Parmesan. So it's, it would seem to be an inauthentic recipe in Julia Child's hands, but we could trace back the Parmesan to authentic recipes in France. <coughs> I wanted to get back to the authenticity project, actually. So um, I know it might be a bit premature, but in, f in cataloging the various occurrences of authenticity, um, how have you and your students noticed that authenticity is used differently than in popular press or food realm? So I do have to say it's premature because we haven't collated our findings yet. But I could speak to the question because I've been thinking about this for some time. Um, again, it's complicated. I think in each each use, each statement about authenticity, one first has to look at the use value of the context of the way the term is being used. So in culinary terms, it could mean a number of things. Um, the example I gave, the authenticity of the Parmesan, is one where you're trying to match a dish of either unknown origins or unknown authenticity, as it were, uh, you're trying to find a traditional dish which would match the recipe. Um, it could mean something more like uh, the matter of familiarity. When I first taught uh, quite a while ago, maybe 20 years ago, the uh, gastronomy and performance course at NYU, uh, there was a Vietnamese-American student in the class. And she was living in New York, had family in Los Angeles, and had traveled to Paris. And she said it was very strange because she found the Vietnamese food in New York more authentic than the food in Los Angeles. Mm. And then she said, and she was amazed when she went to Paris to find it even more authentic in Paris than in New York. And she thought it would have been more authentic in Los Angeles because it's closer to Vietnam. And I said, no, it's the history of colonization. Indochina, Vietnam, was colonized first by the French and then by the Americans. So the food way, the colonial food way, became one that first passed through Paris. And I had the same experience. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the best... Um, Vietnamese food I had for a long time was in Paris. 
usually in very small mom-and-pop restaurants. So in that instance, what she meant by authentic was that was the food. She wasn't at that point interested in the historical origins of a particular dish. What she meant by authentic was the food that tasted most like the food she remembered in her family from her childhood. Hmm. And of course, then one could think of the the very famous literary examples like Proust with the Madeleine, but it's not only the Madeleine. Proust gives us a whole list of what the housekeeper cook would cook. And for each thing on the list, there was a different reason why it came to that into the house. And there was a different dish which was chosen and they were all traditional dishes. So in that regard, one would want to ask the question which we already we were on the borderline of asking about the differences between traditional cooking, where it makes sense to ask the question of authenticity. Um, it's about origins, it's about the use of particular, I mean, geographic origins, uh, about the use of particular foodstuffs, about reminiscence in taste. You could ask those questions. I'm not sure what it would mean, or even if it would be legitimate to ask the question in terms of the nouvelle cuisine, because it's a cuisine of experimentation. One is not trying to match something. One is not trying to rediscover something. One is trying to invent something. It's a cuisine of invention rather than tradition. And that's not to say, as I suggested before, that within tr you, you can invent within tradition but it will tend to happen more slowly. And the invention will be, you'll be able to read it off from house to house, from village to village. It's similar to the structure of language. You know, I, I tend to think of um, French, for example, as just one variant of, a Lat of one single Latinate language that goes from the south of Sicily all the way to Santiago de Compostela in the very northwest of Spain. And you not only have the transformation of language to language and dialect to dialect, but there are also the patois, the regional and sub-regional variants. And what you used to find in France, the patois is disappearing, but you used to find even from village to village, from valley to valley, there would be slight differences in the patois, in the accent, in the vocabulary. Um, one could think of food much the same way in the, what I would call the natural range of a traditional dish. You will find variants that will go from culture to culture and subculture to subculture. You write in the authenticity article in Gastronomica that authenticity is always named or deemed retrospectively or retroactively, mm -hmm. right? And so is there any way of transitioning a traditional dish into Nouvelle Cuisine or is it very abrupt and it's kind of like, um, what is it, doing something wrong and then asking for forgiveness after? It's a fascinating question. Um, the reason that I say that the question of authenticity is always asked retrospectively, um, when you grow up in a house or in a village eating a particular dish, you never ask if it's authentic. You ask if it's authentic once you leave the village for the big city or wherever yeah. else, and you start doing the comparisons and you start doing the history. It's not unlike landscape. I've done a lot of writing, a lot of studies in landscape. 
And the idea of the landscape is an urban idea. The peasant doesn't think of the landscape. For the peasant, the landscape is something functional. It's something you live within. It becomes abstracted, sometimes at several levels, the landscape, then again into the garden. It becomes abstracted by the gardener. It becomes abstracted when it becomes aestheticized. I think something similar is happening in food. So your question is really interesting because yes, you could go into, it's rare, but you could find in three-star Michelin haute cuisine restaurants examples of stuffed cabbage. But they always, in these restaurants, they feel that they have to do something to distinguish the stuffed cabbage from the traditional versions. They have to invent something. It's a cuisine of invention. And as an aside, I would say one of the things that's really been lost over the last three, four decades um, is the traditional French haute cuisine, the cuisine of Escoffier. When I first came to Paris, it was in 78, 79. And you could still go in a small town, go into a more or less fancy restaurant near a railroad station and get a dish like a Tourne dos Rossini. You can't find these things anymore. The French haute cuisine, which was the basis of the American discovery of haute cuisine and really the basis of international cuisine until the rise of the nouvelle cuisine in the 60s, most of that has disappeared. Most of the cuisine we eat in the, what we call haute cuisine in the very expensive restaurants, in the Japanese kaiseki restaurants, it's an offshoot or a development of nouvelle cuisine, of an experimental cuisine. Uh, the traditional cuisines are the cuisines that one eats in the small regional restaurants that have no pretensions towards, or few inventions towards inventiveness which is a good thing. I would hate for these restaurants to disappear. And I wish that some of the old cuisine, I know it would be an archeological, almost a museum project. I wish some of this old cuisine would come back. Um, there's a restaurant that I used to love to go to in London. It was the restaurant of the old Tate Gallery. They were famous for their wine cellar, but they were also famous at one point because the chef decided at a point when English cuisine was the cuisine people made jokes of, <laughs> when it wasn't the most exciting cuisine on earth, uh, there were exciting things happening, but you had to look for them. And what the chef at that time, I don't remember his or her name, uh, of the Tate Gallery did, that chef resuscitated not just traditional, but medieval and Renaissance recipes, historic recipes. And it was spectacular. It was a really spectacular restaurant. And that was the beginning of something. It was the beginning of the, I could say, the vivification or maybe the revivification of English cuisine. So I wish there were more of that happening. But um, in terms of authenticity, I'm not sure that it's a word that's at all useful in relation to um, much current uh, haute cuisine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, maybe the misnomer, the, the fault of Nouvelle Cuisine is that it feels like there's no heart or there's no story because it's all about experimentation. And I think that might be why um, we have this longing or maybe desire to find authenticity or, or, or more, I guess, fascinated with this idea of authenticity because there seems to be a lack of it. Do you think this is true? Well, you know, it depends what one is searching for. I, as 
one already gets a sense through my stuffed cabbage wrap. Um, I was never searching for my roots. Um, I only once went to Hungary, my father's country of origin. I never went to Poland. And I always felt that there are many ways you could define yourself. You could defi you could define yourself through your, your race, your sexuality, your national origins, your regional origins. I'd always felt, to the contrary, that I at least tried to define myself through what I produced, through my writings, much less so through my cooking. And in terms of my both artistic and academic career, what I'm fundamentally interested in is the avant-garde, is the experimental. So I am very interested, fascinated by all of the different experimental cuisines, but I think that it in no way excludes a passion for traditional cuisine at the same time. I don't find them incompatible. I find them two sides of the same coin. So it's interesting, your question is interesting, can you, can you have a, a nouvelle cuisine dish based on traditional cuisine? I would probably go so far as to say that at, the, at its origin in the 60s, even into the 70s, most nouvelle cuisine dishes were more or less recognizable extreme variants of traditional dishes, but then they got further and further and further away. So it depends what one is looking for, it depends what one likes. The reason that I'm such a fan of Michel Brasse's cooking, whose restaurant is in the Aubrac where I spent all of my summers for about 17 years, is that I found his cuisine to be an equilibrium between the use of traditional foodstuffs, regional recipes, recipes from haute cuisine, French haute cuisine, and the techniques and foodstuffs from the nouvelle cuisine. It was an equilibrium between the two. But one could think, for example, of um, the current fascination with molecular gastronomy. I haven't eaten much of it. Um, I find it interesting. I've, I hadn't been to Il Bulli, and now that it's gone, I'll never go. But I think of what a friend of mine, a great gastronome and wine lover, said when I asked him if he had ever been to Il Bulli. And his response, a very disdainful response, was, I don't want to eat smoke. <laughs> And I, I suppose there's a part of me that that likes all of the, the surprises and inventions and strangeness. Uh, um, the, I suppose one could call it, to use a literary term, the defamiliarization of cuisine that one finds in molecular gastronomy. But there's a part of me that also says, I don't want to eat smoke. Uh, there is a part of me. It's my stuffed cabbage side, which is, which is I, I don't feel that I have roots. I was born in the South Bronx. I live in Manhattan. I've taught all my life in Manhattan. I'm really a city boy. And in, in that sense, rootless or rootless in terms of being international. I mean, New York is stupendous. There are, what, 200, 250 languages spoken here and even more cuisines. Um, but if I had to have some sort of fantasy about roots, I suppose I would find it or I would look for it through the stuffed cabbage. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think Nouvelle Cuisine in some ways um, defamiliarizes us from the expected, but also in that defamiliarization reifies what 
we know about the tradition or the uh, quote-unquote authentic food. And so I think perfect segue to um, your writing on Phoenix, singular. Um, what can you give our listeners kind of a brief summary on the article and what you find um, writing about false food or fantastic food kind of illuminates? Uh, yeah, the Phoenix. I, yes, I did a small book um, like the autobiography in a stuffed cabbage called uh, How to Cook a Phoenix. Uh, both were done in French, so don't yet look for it here. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm interested in the culinary imagination. And the problem when doing a book like the stuffed cabbage is that you are bound to reality. It's hard to get to the level of the imaginary with a real dish. So I wanted to think about what could be called crypto-gastronomy or imaginary cuisine. And it struck me that the phoenix would be a perfect example because it's so outrageous. Uh, you know the myth of the phoenix. Uh, the phoenix, there's only one on earth at a time. It's the bird that when it comes to maturity bursts out in flames, turns into ashes, and a new phoenix arises from the ashes. It's a cyclical bird. What most people don't know is that the, in, the, in the original myth, or at least the original western myth of the phoenix, the form that the phoenix takes when it comes out of the ashes, before it becomes a baby bird, is a worm. So the life cycle is a little different than you might imagine. So I started doing research on the phoenix, and what I discovered, that it's stupendous how much information there is, and we actually know more about the phoenix than we do about any real bird. Except in all of the research I did, I didn't find a single recipe for the phoenix. <laughs> so this was perfect. This was perfect. So one had to ask the same questions as with the stuffed cabbage dish. How do you cook a phoenix? And of course, we could. I haven't seen and certainly not caught and haven't eaten or cooked a phoenix but one would have to ask how would this be done you know the the roman emperor heliogabalus um who did believe there was a phoenix sent his hunters out he offered i think 40 or 50 pieces of gold to the hunter who would find the phoenix none of them ever did but one understands why because heliogabalus as his name suggests helios he was a sun god. He was an emperor who was a sun god. And the phoenix is a solar bird. The sun god wanted to eat the solar bird. So how do you cook it, assuming you could find it? So you work by analogy. What kind of bird is a phoenix? Well, it's a game bird. So then one looks at game recipes for large birds. So by analogy, you would have to think of, you know, probably in America, the great game bird is the wild turkey or in Europe, the goose, the wild goose. But the problem with the phoenix, so you have to, game is only good when it's properly hung. It has to be, as the French say, faison day. It has to, you know, game is much tougher than domestic animals because the animals are running wild. So you have to not only soften up the flesh, but you have to give it more flavor. So you hang it, you essentially let it rot a little. That's what hanging is. It's like aging beef. Um, so, the problem is usually, you know, you will, you will hang game birds for quite a long time. But remember the danger with the phoenix, you want to avoid it bursting into flames. <laughs> so you can't hang it too long. So what you have to do, 
before you hang a bird, you, you will occasionally bait, you will uh, uh, put it in a marinade. So the purpose of the marinade is to give flavor. But the problem with the marinade is the marinade has oil in it. Now you don't want to put the phoenix in an oil-based marinade because the oil will, it's combustible. So you have to use a marinade that's a fire retardant. <laughs> Okay. So there's a certain logic, and it's like the culinary logic of any food stuff. You have to know the qualities of the food stuff in order to know how to treat it. So similarly, so we're assuming we're going to roast it. That's the best thing to do with a big game bird. And of course, as you're roasting it, you're basting it. Now, with other game birds, you're basting it so it doesn't dry out. But the problem with the phoenix is, if you add fire to it, it will self-combust too quickly, and you don't want it overcooked. And you certainly don't want to turn it into ash. So again, like with the marinade, what you baste it with is going to have to be something that will prevent it from burning. And then you know, we could keep on working through the analogy. I don't think we'll have time to do the entire recipe. But then you'd want to ask, how do you flavor it? What do you use? And very often, you will stuff game birds with the wild herbs that they eat, which are the herbs found in their environment. So in the Western myth of the phoenix, the phoenix comes from the Arabian Peninsula. So what would probably be useful to think as flavorings would be the spices and herbs used in the various cuisines, and there are many, on the Arabian Peninsula, which of course would include the spices coming across Central Asia on the spice route. So one could imagine a sort of curry that could be rubbed into it um, um, of those spices, and it could be stuffed with the sorts of herbs that are found in that area. And then one last thing, uh, an accompaniment. Well, here we could even stretch the analogy because the phoenix is often thought of in relation to dates, edible dates, because there is a, one of the most beautiful and one of the largest types of palm trees is called the phoenix palm. So. You could, by analogy, think, well, the phoenix palm, the date palm, dates, and of course, we do eat fruits with large birds. Uh, if we go back to our example of the autumnal wild duck with red cabbage, uh, often the cabbage is mixed with apples. So the relationship of fruits with game birds is quite common. So we could imagine dates and spiced dates are magnificent. So spiced dates with the roast phoenix. I think that's a perfect way to end our episode today. Thank you so much for joining me today for talking about food real and not. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much. <laughs> and TV Eaton will be back next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening.